Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. For this episode, we'll be picking up where we left off with the RipperCon Jack the Ripper and True Crime Convention from Baltimore, which took place last April 2016. And the following presentation is by conference organizers Janice Wilson and Chris George, The Ripper, Sherlock Holmes, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Janice Wilson is a Baltimore-based ripperologist and the author of the forthcoming book Goldston Street, a former newspaper reporter and trial lawyer who has lectured on the Whitechapel murders on several occasions, including at Temple University in Philadelphia, and has also appeared as a true crime commentator for the Investigation Discovery television channel. Chris George, while being an organizer of past North American Ripper conferences, has also been an editor of Ripper Notes magazine and is currently the editor-at-large for Ripperologist magazine. Originally from Liverpool, he too now currently resides in Baltimore, Maryland. It's a fairly short presentation, and I'd like to tell our listeners that much of this talk is conversation with the conference delegates in the audience, amongst them Martin Fido. So at various points, the audio struggles to pick up the comments coming from those attendees, so I suggest turning up the volume, wearing headphones, or do whatever you need to do to hear these attendee remarks, since they do add interesting information to the presentation. And so without further ado... Let's turn it over to Janice and Chris in Baltimore. Chris has asked me to read to you from the excellent A to Z, thank you, Martin, um, about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Theorist and occasional suspect. Educated Edinburgh University, MD 1885, best known for being the creator of Sherlock Holmes. On 2 December 1892, in the company of his brother-in-law, E.W. Horning, creator of Raffles, and Jerome K. Jerome, author of Three Men in a Boat, he visited the Black Museum in Scotland Yard where he saw facsimiles of the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jack postcard. In 1894, he told an American journalist that he concluded they were written by an educated person who would have and who would have recognized handwriting samples had they been made available. Uh, He was unaware that the police had already done this. The interview was reported in the Portsmouth Evening News for July 1894. Doyle also attended the Crimes Club tour of the murder sites, guided by Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown in 1905. See also Ingleby Adi. Nigel Moreland, former editor of Criminologist, claimed that when he was young, Doyle had remarked to him that the Ripper was, quotes, somewhere in the upper stratum, close quotes, but he would never explain any further introduction to Prince Jack. Doyle has been described as as proposing the theory that the Ripper might have been a midwife. As such, a woman could pass through the streets in blood-stained clothing without attracting attention. The authors have been unable to trace an original source claiming to have heard this firsthand from Doyle. Australian psychic Anne Anne, see Death of a Prince, 
has initiated a good deal of interest in Doyle as a spirit informant on the Ripper, which has led to some unfounded suggestions that he was a black magician and the Ripper himself. Chris, did you want to pick it up here? Yeah. Um, while I think about it before uh, I get carried away, um, I have a little display on the table over there where I was sitting. Uh, up the front is Tumblety's Baltimore Will is on there. Uh, in beautiful script, uh, doesn't seem to be uh, his handwriting. In fact, um, the St. Louis Will is also, or maybe being British, I should say, St. Louis Will is uh, on there too. Uh, it's pretty tatty handwriting in his... Um, Signature at the end of it is very shaky. This was just before he died. Um, there's also pictures of his grave uh, and several other things of interest that you might want to have a look at. Um, so, Conan Doyle, uh, certainly interesting uh, as an authority on crime uh, and writing uh, crime fiction. Uh, famous all over the world, and you would think that uh, uh, he would have ideas about the case. This is a statue of Sherlock Holmes in uh, Edinburgh, and uh, as Janice mentioned, he was um, educated. I don't mean Sherlock Holmes, I mean uh, Conan Doyle uh, qualified as a physician in uh, Edinburgh. And I also wanted to mention to Rob, uh, who is a Premier League fan, uh, as I am, uh, did you know that uh, Conan Doyle played in goal for Portsmouth? He was a goalie. A little bit of trivia for you. And speaking of which, we'll have the trivia contest a little bit later since we're running late. Maybe the last um, event of the day after I thought... Um, We'll give um, Mike Hawley the chance to finish his presentation rather than talk about the state of the case, which uh, is kind of up in the air. A few years ago, there was a, um, this film that came out in 1979, Time After Time. It's one of the better films about the Ripper. H.G. Um, Wells races through time to catch Jack the Ripper. Um, and, of course, there are also a few um, stories about, um, fictionalized stories about uh, Sherlock Holmes chasing the Ripper, too. But, uh, again, this is one of the better uh, Ripper films. And here with the two stars, uh, Malcolm McDowell on the left as H.G. Wells and David Warner as Jack the Ripper. So what did... Conan Doyle think about the case. Uh, as we were saying, uh, it states in A to Z, and I believe it too, that uh, he apparently suggested that um, the Ripper could have been a midwife or a woman, uh, and that would have um, enabled him certainly to uh, walk through Whitechapel with bloodstained clothes. Uh, when Don Rumbler was here um, for the 2002 Jack the Ripper convention held at the Comfort Inn out at BWI Airport. Um, he also mentioned that uh, the Ripper could conceivably have been a slaughterman, 
and then had an apron that was blood-stained, and nobody would have thought twice about it. So uh, there are those different options. But it's interesting that um, uh, Doyle seems to have believed that um, it, the uh, Ripper could have been uh, a midwife. But both of those theories presuppose that the people in Whitechapel knew these blood-stained persons to be associated with those occupations. Mm-hmm. Because if anybody else was just walking down the street in blood-stained ta- blood clothing, it would excite attention, I think, even in Whitechapel. Well, yes, but um, in some ways these were more basic times. I mean, everybody knew that there were slaughterhouses all over the East End, and... Um, I mean, they, they would actually drive cattle through the streets. I mean, I, I know that that um, happened in Liverpool, and uh, I'm certain it happened in, uh, in London too. And so I'm not sure that they would think about it the way we would think about it today, in a way. It's interesting, that, though, that there's, um, you know, there was the slaughterhouse just by Bucks Row where Mary, Mary um, Nichols was found. And I've always wondered whether one of those guys could have been responsible for her murder. And um, I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure that the police did check that idea out. But um, nonetheless, um, I somehow think that those guys might have been more the, um, the idea uh, for the Ripper than maybe Lechmere or... Charles Cross, as he's named originally, and as you know, the name Lechmere came out recently, and uh, a lot of people think that he used this alternate name uh, because he was Jack the Ripper, and there's there's been heated debates on the boards about that. Uh, I I don't quite buy it myself. I mean, the fact that he's associated with one single murder the first canonical murder doesn't make him Jack the Ripper, I don't think. And so many people used alternate names. I mean, just as we've been talking about the the Jewish people involved in the case often had two names or several names. There he is actively thinking about uh, the Whitechapel murders right at this very moment when this was taken. (laughs) There was this um, fictionalized novel that came out recently, Diane Gilbert Madsen. Uh, did Arthur Conan Doyle and the real Sherlock Holmes solve the Jack the Ripper mystery? Now, Dr. Joseph Bell, Scottish physician, was mentor to Conan Doyle, and it's believed that he was Sherlock Holmes' model for... Um, uh, he was Conan Doyle's model for Sherlock Holmes. And this is from Milwaukee... Journal, October 13th, 1955, and here it actually says that um, Bell looked into uh, the murders and sent a theory to uh, Scotland Yard, and this is also picked up by uh, Miss Madsen in her book, uh, although there's no proof that uh, Conan Doyle or um, Bell actually sent anything to Scotland Yard. But nonetheless, her ripper turns out to be none other than J.K. Stevens. He was Virginia Woolf's brother. That's correct, I think. I mean, she was born... Um, no, no, no. Uh, cousin? Nephew. Nephew? Okay, okay. Uh, anyway, he, he is 
most of you will know, maybe all of you, he was the tutor to Prince Eddie at Cambridge. So um, her theory really kind of um, is redolent of the royal conspiracy theory more than um, uh, perhaps Conan Doyle himself actually would have thought, but nonetheless we do have that statement by Morland that um, uh, somebody high up, but nonetheless that's a lot of those other statements, I mean Monroe's uh, apparel statement that uh, it was somebody one of the highest in the land. Conan Doyle did have an involvement in one Ripper case, but it was a uh, a guy who slashed animals. As you know, this is quite something that happens uh, around the countryside. Somebody will um, slaughter a cow or mutilate a horse or so on. And uh, he did have involvement in uh, getting to the solution of this mystery. And this is uh, an article, it's a, an excerpt from a biography of um, uh, Conan Doyle, the Whirly case, Great Whirly, W-Y-R-L-Y. Um, and this was posted by um, Howard Brown on JTR forums. You can download this as a PDF. Somebody else had an idea that um, the, uh, the Ripper could have been a woman. And um, here you have uh, this short article from the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, September 21st, 1889. Lawson Tate, the eminent gynecologist, today said he was of the opinion that the Whitechapel, Chelsea and Battersea murders were probably committed by the same criminal, probably a lunatic woman employed in a slaughterhouse and subject to fits of epileptic furor. And here he is, Lawson Tate, quite a big man, as you can see. He was a gynecologist working in Birmingham and a pioneer in the field, uh, but quite a, a controversial um, uh, personality. He had um, kind of demeaning views of women, even though he... Um, worked as a surgeon on women, he treated women. He lived at Landudno in North Wales uh, on, in his later years. Uh, it's apparently where he retired to. And um, Landudno has this big headland, the Great Orm. I visited there a number of times um, as a child. And his house was apparently on one side of the... Um, of the Great Orm on the Conway side, I believe. He was cremated at the end of his life at Anfield Cemetery in Liverpool, and uh, his ashes brought back to um, uh, the Great Orm, and I believe uh, buried in a cave. And th this is the rest of his theory, uh, quite, quite a long article, and um, this is... Uh, as you can see, Northeastern Gazette, September the 21st, 1889. And he had an idea that not only was the Ripper a female slaughterhouse worker, but that she was a London slaughterhouse worker because of the manner of the cuts of the, um, uh, the killer. 
how would he know that it was a London slaughterhouse worker and not a Birmingham or a Liverpool or a Hull slaughterhouse worker? I don't know. So that, that's, that's one of the mysteries and um, just uh, kind of a strange thing to say. And um, as it said in uh, this earlier, um, well, and this is kind of a shortened version of the same thing, uh, this was, uh, both these articles came out September 1889. And as it says at the top, uh, the Whitechapel murder, murder, strange suggestion by a specialist. And I would certainly agree with that. Janice? Well, he was a gynecologist who opined on the effects of epilepsy, so <laughs> I'm not sure that I, I think that I can buy into a whole lot of what he's saying. Mm. Um, you know, one of the questions posed here is whether Conan Doyle, and even with the assistance of the very able Dr. Bell, could have solved the Ripper case. And I have given some thought to this. Certainly, as Chris has ably demonstrated, there's just no question at all that he was fascinated by these killings. And my personal opinion is that he could not have solved it. And I realize that that is anathema in this room, but um, I just think that Holmes' milieu was cold logic. What could be observed? Now, certainly he could have observed a number of problems with the investigation of the Ripper case. I mean, he he would ask how the Ripper could abandon Elizabeth Stride, pull himself together, go out and find another prostitute, talk her into leaving with him, walking to a new murder site, killing her, mutilating the body, and escaping in less than 44 minutes. I think he'd have a little problem with that. I don't think that he would have bought the double event, is what I'm trying to say. Certainly, Holmes was no slouch. In 1891, he had already investigated, by his count, a thousand cases. But only a few were important enough to be recorded by Watson. Holmes would have noticed that the wounds on Stride's throat were caused by a knife with a rounded top and with a dull blade. This is unlike the Ripper's previous victims. Holmes also would have pointed out to the constabulary that Stride was murdered in an alley beside a noisy pub with people passing by every minute. But Jack's other victims were found in quiet, dark areas of Whitechapel. Holmes would have pulled together, I think, a list of facts to, to try to determine who could have done the crime. Well, there was no evidence of sexual assault. That's pretty interesting, although I'm not sure that Dr. Watson would have actually put that down on paper. Um, there was no evidence of physical torture prior to death. That's very significant. It's possible that there was manual strangulation because these women did not scream. They did not struggle. 
He would have noted the time of death always being in the early morning hours and occurring on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, with the exception of August Bank Holiday. Um, he would have noted that Martha Tabram was stabbed 39 times in a rage killing, unlike the other victims. Um, so Holmes would have concluded that the man was probably a white male. He moved about easily in Whitechapel. Uh, that he had a full-time job, which explained the times of the killings, which occurred on the weekends. That he probably lived and worked in Whitechapel. How else can anyone learn how to negotiate the rabbit, rabbit warren that is Whitechapel? So many tiny little streets running into other tiny little streets. The Ripper simply could not have made good his escape repeatedly if he didn't know the area very, very well. The, um, I think that Holmes might have concluded that Tabram was a Ripper victim. Even though she was killed on a Tuesday and all the other victims died on the weekend, this was right after August Bank Holiday, as I said. He also would have studied the Lusk letter. And I think that Holmes would have concluded that that letter was the only one really sent by Jack the Ripper. And why would Holmes reach that conclusion? Because it had the goods in it to back it up. I promised you a kidney. Here's a kidney. Fairly compelling evidence. Now, it's been said that Doyle was, in some respects, considered to be a suspect himself. Holmes wouldn't be buying it. Um, for one thing, he'd be out of work. <laughs> Second, Doyle was much too tall. And we've had the descriptions from various people in the neighborhood who had seen various suspects. Uh, also, Doyle did not live or work in Whitechapel. So when you put all these facts together, and I think that Holmes would have done a splendid job of collecting these data, it still co comes down to means, motive, and opportunity. The killer had the means, he had the knife. He had the motive, God knows what that is. And he had the opportunity because he lives and works and moves freely in Whitechapel. But the motive is a big problem, and I think it would be for Holmes. Because, I mean, we've been talking about motive all weekend. Tumble T was a gay man, no reason to suspect that he conducted violent acts against women. And so the motive is a real question. What did the Ripper get out of killing these women, especially with whom he had no sexual contact, which may very well be the motive in and of itself? And I think that to an educated mind, and we know that Holmes had two years of university, although Doyle was not kind enough to tell us which university. We all know it was Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> um, I just don't think Holmes is going to be able to come up with a logical motive, probably because none exists. I mean, we've seen many stories of serial killers, and they say, why did you do it? And they give the reason, and you go, but that's not a reason. I mean, it happens all the time. It's perfectly consistent in their minds, but makes no sense to the rest of the world. 
So I don't think that Holmes would have been able to pin a motive on anybody. And without a motive, I don't think he would have been able to point the finger at any particular suspect. If anyone involved with Conan Doyle was going to be able to crack the case, I think that it might be the poor, long-suffering Dr. Watson. And I don't mean Nigel Bruce, who couldn't find his way out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> but it is possible that Dr. Watson would have become aware of the interesting studies in psychoanalysis and alienism that were taking place in Vienna at that time and the birth of the talking cure and the concept that sex plays a big role in one's life and the informative years and can really bend the psyche in an ugly way. Had Watson given credence to that, he might have been able to say, okay, well, this is a guy who has tertiary syphilis and has gone mad or was wronged by a prostitute or was cheated on by his wife. And at least that would narrow the field of suspects somewhat. And had he given that information to Holmes, we might not be having this very pleasant meeting this weekend. So that's just my thoughts on whether Holmes could have solved the case. Are there questions? A small correction. For yes, please. Uh, Richard Whittington Egan mm-hmm. has found uh, a better, clearer, closer to Doyle's statement about that midwife theory. Okay. Apparently, what Doyle said was the man could have dressed himself as well, a midwife. Ah, right. The same principle right. that we'll be going through with Bud's statement. Yeah. But Doyle didn't go for the idea of apparently. Yeah, yeah, they, they, it certainly could have been a man in disguise, and that would be an excellent um, uh, means of escape if, if you're dressed as a woman, definitely. Um, I have another little bit of trivia. Um, Battle Rathbone, who's famously played Sherlock Holmes, uh, was born to a Liverpool family. Uh, the Rathbones were a big merchant family in Liverpool, He was a war hero in the First World War and was decorated. Uh, He um, was involved in um, going behind enemy lines, uh, wearing disguises, which is uh, significant, I think, for someone who's going to play Sherlock Holmes uh, later in life. Um, This is just a little anecdote I'm going to tell you. I, I should have brought my ripper knife today. Um, a few years ago, a um, guy that I met on Casebook uh, gave me an autopsy knife. It's a modern Liston knife, completely steel. doesn't have a, uh, a wooden or a, a plastic handle or ebony, uh, whatever it could have been made of. Um, This guy um, went by the name of Nick Danger on uh, Casebook. And uh, I met him at the um, Park Avenue Armory uh, in New York. And um, it was a reunion of First World War veterans. Actually, they were reenactors, dressed as 
either German or um, British, some aviators, some army, etc. Um, ladies there too, dressed as uh, World War I, nurses, uh, or, you know, in, in various capacities. Um, Nick turned out to be this little stubby Jewish guy, uh, dressed as a German private. In any case, um, he gave me the knife, and walking away from um, the armory uh, down Park Avenue to my hotel, I thought to myself that I'm perfectly armed with this wonderful Jack the Ripper knife and I could certainly defend myself if anybody tried to drag me into an alleyway. Yes? I'm going to stir the pot up a little bit. Okay. We know Arthur Conan Doyle. First of all, we hated Sherlock Holmes and he wanted to be known for the White Company and all the other trash in his race. But uh, I think his personal views of the world, I mean, from the spiritualism to the fairies dancing and all that, why, yep. why should we take him seriously if he were so aberrant in those areas of his life? Why would he all of a sudden become logical in others? Or is that just a I, I, I think part of it is that it's, you know, um, it's just like the, the recent movie, uh, Batman versus Superman, that you somehow feel that Sherlock Holmes or the creator of Sherlock Holmes would um, have a theory on the, the most famous case of the age. Uh, but that, you're right. I mean, he was, he was a fiction writer. That didn't necessarily mean that he was uh, a Sherlock Holmes himself. He was the creator of Holmes. But, um, uh, and certainly his dippy ideas, uh, what are they, the Cottingly Furries? Didn't he believe in them as well as uh, <laughs> mediums and all that stuff? Yeah. I don't think it's so much an acceptance of him. Uh, as an appreciation of his creation. Remember that at this time, there were floods of people pouring into the metropolis. And as a consequence of that, crime was, of course, increasing. As a consequence of that, people also were beginning to have increased, albeit reluctant, respect for the cops and anyone who could investigate and solve a crime. Now, I also think that Holmes fills a need in all of us because like Poirot, he says, I merely observe. And I think we all would like to feel that if we really dug down deep and had to, didn't have to worry about getting on dinner on the table tonight, we would have been able to notice that one sleeve on the guy's jacket was shorter than the other and things of that nature. And I think that we want to feel that we have the goods to make these analyses as well. Pardon. I'd like to two things in defense of Doyle. First, the spiritualism and the Cottingley Fairies nonsense came 20 years after he created Holmes. Uh, World War I, which leads into spiritualism as it led a lot of other people desperately wanting to contact. Right. Secondly, not only in the Idalji case, but also in the Oscar Slater case. Doyle successfully proved the innocence of men who had been convicted. Now, I don't know why Richard Whittington Egan challenges him over the Idalji case, 
and says he's been down there too early and he got the fields and the route wrong. But basically, Holmes established quite clearly that this was a racist attack on the Parsi son of a Parsi who happened to be the local vicar there. Mm. And in the Oscar Slater case, there's a famous case uh, based in Edinburgh, he succeeded in getting the man out of prison when he had been uh, given a life sentence. He proved that the Slater had a bad record. He, he was um, known as a thief. And uh, uh, this woman, Miss Gilchrist, had been killed by someone. And it was said that Slater had possession of a brooch, which was like one she owned. Uh, he'd gone to America. He was brought back, uh, put on trial. And because he had a very bad record as a criminal, uh, didn't look very good in the, the box, he was sent down. He was not, however, uh, hanged. And Doyle established very, very clearly that a quite different man had been seen leaving Miss Gilchrist's apartment when she left, that the police had had evidence of a maid who had seen this man suppressed, uh, and established very clearly, very indignant with Slater, who was most ungrateful to him, didn't offer him any help for the expenses he'd got. He was naive in many ways, even though he was to some extent naive, he wasn't a fool. Well, and I think there's a certain, what we call now the CSI effect, where people think that the scientists, the detectives, who really, you know, come, uh, come to conclusions of ordinary people think are astounding, even though they're very simple. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, uh, they're looking at, they're re-looking, I guess, at uh, some Spilsbury's cases. Oh, yes. Where, you know, it, it, it may be that he's quite wrong, and uh, severely wrong. Uh, you know, certainly if you have, in, in cases like that, or uh, whacked or something, you would go and testify in cases. Uh, it's part of the aura around that Henry Lee is a classic example, even though he's wrong or quick in So, you know, Tyler Doyle could certainly go in and uh, create doubt. I mean, there are very few cases, I think, frankly, that I could have really created doubt. I mean, it's, if you want smoke and nerves, it's very easy to do that in forensic science. I think. Um, so, uh, I, I think the creation of Sherlock Holmes is a creation. It's, it's, it's another part of him that he somehow separated and put in there. Uh, as to the man himself, I'm not so sure he had those properties, but he created them with someone else. And I, I'll take it. Yeah, no, that's true. That's right. So his son said that he was occasionally very good at looking at people across in the restaurant and doing the Joseph Bell tricks. Very this sort of bad. But Brooks, I think one also wants to point out that after he became a spiritualist, he refused to take up cases that people asked him to look into and directed them to a good medium. But he said, well, that will be the way it is. There is a case actually where they did that, which was reversed. Okay. All Let's right. move on then. It's time for our next panel. And that was The Ripper, Sherlock Holmes, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Janice Wilson and Christopher T. George's presentation at the Baltimore RipperCon, Jack the Ripper in True Crime Convention. 
Releasing these conference talks from Baltimore could not have been possible without the work of Robert Anderson. So I would like to again thank him as well as give thanks to Chris and Janice for their cooperation with RipperCast. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by the website casebook.org, where in the podcast section you'll be able to find all of our dozens of roundtable discussions and conference talks on topics related to Jack the Ripper, the East End of London, and British true crime. If you have comments or questions, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.